Well, it's 5.15. Time for Gene. And this uh, is the final of the uh, Holy Land series of his trip to uh, uh, Israel back in 1966. June 10th, 1966, about the city of Beersheba. Uh, well, there is one limelight that we didn't get to, but uh, let's get to this one. We Actually, we're doing these about a month ago. We took a little break, but uh, here is, uh, we might as well finish the, the series. So uh, here's Gene. How do you expect me to work here without my... Bring my coffee in here! Man out loud. Get out of here, you bum. All right, let's get back to... Would you bring me a little of that sensual music on? Come on, Larry, bring it on big and strong. Hit it. Come on! That's it. Watch these knees move. How do I bring it up there? Watch these gut muscles rippling like the sea at twilight. Many-colored lights of life in the Middle East is coming your way. You want to hear more about the Middle East tonight? Let me tell you, you reset that. We're going to need that. You know, some lady wrote to me a nutty note here, and she says, Shepard, she says, uh, she says, how is it that all that, that Middle Eastern Arabic music sounds the same? <laughs> she says, uh, they must have a very finely tuned ear to tell the difference between each one of the tunes. And I can only say to her, do you know that to the Arabic, all of our music sounds exactly the same? 
Have you ever tried to de- have you ever tried to to sit there and determine the subtle difference between one rock and roll tune and the next? It's almost totally really seriously. If you're more than twenty feet away from a radio, it sounds like you're listening to the same piece of junk. Goes on and on and on, and you know that brings up uh, that brings up a, a, a just a little insight uh, that I had one night. I'm lying in my sack. See, it's it's uh, must have been about one o'clock in the morning, and I've got my little transistor radio on, and I'm in this town which is not far from the Jordanian border, and it's on the edge of the Negev Desert, and it's hot, and you can smell the peculiar smell of the Middle East. Which, yeah, it is now. It isn't what you think, uh, the smell of the Middle East. No, you're thinking of the Lower East Side. That's something else. This is the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> George, with rotten minds. Well, uh, the, the, the smell of the Middle East, though, is very, it, it's a peculiar smell. It's one that, the, once you've smelled it, you can never forget it. And it isn't like any other smell. You can't fake it. Uh, it uh, oh, I can, let's see how, what I could think closely. Uh, I think a large part of it is the the Israeli cigarettes they smoke, uh, the Arabic type of tobacco, which has a strange aroma that is somehow closely related to burning mattresses. Uh, it does. Oh yeah, this is it's a terrible smelling tobacco, awful stuff. That combined with uh, oh, moldy camel dung. Uh, well, that's all part of it. Oh, this is the Middle East, you know. Baking sand, uh, 45,000 years of uh, Roman sandals that have decayed into dust. It's, it's Put this whole thing together and you've got the smell of the Middle East. Uh, and it's, uh, it's unique. It uh, has no other counterpart anywhere. And I'm lying in my sack and that smell is coming in through the window. And uh, uh, the... the uh, the uh, shades are sort of half drawn. There's a big, heavy. S- the, the moon is so bright in the desert that you have to pull your shades down, or you can't go to sleep. Oh, they really have a moon there. It was full moon. Yeah, it's it's it's. In fact, when when the moon is turned full blast, when they really turn it on in the Middle East, and they just switch there and they turn this thing on. It's got a dimmer on it, and when they turn it on, really full blast. You know that you can get a sunburn from the moon, everything. And so the the, the moon is up there blasting down. And I've got the type of shades they have all over the Middle East and the tropics. These wooden slat-like four-bladed fan. You've seen these movies starring Rita Hayworth and Peter Lorre and uh, Humphrey Bogart. They're always in some place just a little bit east of Iran. Well, it's that kind of scene. You know, the fan is going... And as the fan goes around, you can hear it hitting uh, just a steady thump as, it, as it's hitting the larger horse flies. As it as it revolves, <laughs> this is part of the Middle East. You don't hear much about. Oh, listen, they have they have bugs. Let me tell you, they have. You know that for ten minutes, I stopped one of them on the street and talked for about at least ten minutes. I thought it was my guide, and it wasn't until later I realized this was just a particularly big horse fly that was just you know was passing, actually. And you you, you meet him, and so the span is going. I could hear thump, thump, and the bugs yelling and hollering, and the fan is whistling around, and I could smell the Middle East, and I've got my little transistor turned on. Of course, you can hear, I, I would recommend anybody who wants to travel, any whoever gets a chance to travel, by all means, take your transistor radio with you. Don't. By the way, take a, a, an extra set of batteries, too. 
Because, boy, if you ever try to buy a 9-volt battery in a place like uh, uh, Lower Elat, uh, you, will <laughs> you will find not only will it cost you an arm and a leg, that when you put the doggone thing in, it's four years old and it's been dead for two and a half years after you get it. So you, you've got all... And, and another thing, don't think that you're going to go over there and buy film when you're there. You know what a roll of color film costs in uh, Israel, uh, just in general? Roughly the equivalent of, uh, well, if you're going to figure, uh, let's, let's, to an Israeli, the money is about, can you imagine this, a roll of 35 millimeter, 36 exposure, Kodachrome film, about 30 bucks. Hey, that sets you back on your heels when you go in, <laughs> you go in, you say, we five rolls, and the guy figures it out, he says, that'll be $110, and you rock, <laughs> you rock back. So there must be some mistake. I said, film. I didn't want that like a year. And, and, uh, well, it, in, in dollars, the, the money comes, well, you can divide it by three. The money comes to about $10 uh, for, uh, in uh, U.S. dollars for a roll of color film. And that is a lot of money for a roll of film. Especially, you know, when you're, you're doing a lot of picture things. So you better take film with you when you go over there. Well, I'm lying in my sack, and that old, that old fan is going... I'm tuning around the dial, and I'm listening to these various radio shows coming in. And boy, I'll tell you, you hear the wildest stuff from the Middle East coming at you. First of all, about every three or four notches on the dial, you hear a jammer in action. Uh, you know what a jammer sounds like? We're not used to that. It's just like tuning across the dial here on your own radio. And say if WOR is or whatever radio station you're listening to, WNAC, or you're listening to WMGM or something, if that station gets bugged at, say, a station that's four or five notches down the dial, and instead of going out and really doing a real good sales campaign and trying to get our rating going, we just jam the other station. You know, it goes, you know, you just you don't hear them. That's it. <laughs> that's the quickest way to get yourself a rating is to be the only game in town. And so you'll find all up and down the dial, you hear this, and way in the tiny background, you hear the sound of the station that they're jamming. I'll give you an idea what jamming is. Bring me a little of that music on there. We'll show you what it sounds like. It's something, just a, just a, it's, it's right in the middle of the dial. It's about five of them just laying right there and there as you tune your transit. First, you think your transistor's gone nutty. You think your radio's going bad. But it's like this, not easy to, you know, kind of louses up the ball game uh, if, <laughs> if you're trying to hear it through a giant neon sign. So I'm, I'm uh, lying there and I, I tune across the dial. And let me tell you one little, one little uh, dialogue, bit of dialogue I heard. Now, there's a lot of programs that, uh, that countries in that area broadcast in English. You see, the e English is the second language there. And uh, you, go to, you go to Jordan, you go to Syria, you go to Iraq, you go to these. They all speak English pretty much. And uh, that's kind of the second language. Now, all the other languages that they speak, which are their first languages, for example, in, in Israel, the first language, of course, is Hebrew. And the second language is English. And you'll hear an occasional English broadcast. But the English broadcast that most of these other stations do is almost purely for propaganda. They figure that there's uh, a lot of English listeners of people around that are hearing this thing. And so I'm listening to this girl, and she is over there in Jordan. 
and uh, <laughs> and she's talking about Arabic music, and she says uh, very serious programs. They, there's not a laugh, boy, in six months of listening to these things unless you take the unconscious humor as the real humor. And I'm lying in the sack, and she is saying, she says, uh, many Westerners, uh, very precise English, and you can see she's learned it at, at, uh, at a very good school, and she's very serious about her pronunciation. She says, many Westerners do not understand the subtleties of the various forms of Middle Eastern, Indian, and or Oriental music. The forms follow very closely a variation of the fugue, a variation of the cantata movements, and a variation of the basic symphonic structure. Now, the uh, love song, or the ordinary popular song of the Arabic nations, and she goes on and on and on, explaining all this music uh, about how the West should understand this fantastic stuff and should go along with it. And I th I'm sitting there, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, that's, good. that's right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, ancient. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, very highly complex. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand that. Must atone my ear to new sounds. Uh-huh. Very good. Yes. Uh, must have uh, open uh, aesthetic uh, possibilities to see new avenues of beauty. Mm -hmm. Very good. And I'm listening to this. And she could, uh, this is a half-hour show. She talks on and on and on. I'm, I'm really interested in it. Now I say to myself, well, now we're going to get some of this stuff, see. And she stops and says, you are listening to Radio Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom, broadcasting 24 hours a day. In one moment, our next program. <laughs> This is the station break. Then there's another one. They have all these stations have some uh, kind of signature, like the musicals. You know they don't do that anymore in America. Uh, most stations today in America uh, like uh, vocal or oral signatures, like uh, <laughs> your friendly station, or uh, where iron meets coal in the Mahongahela Valley, uh, that kind of stuff, or uh, uh, the action station. Well, now uh, they they are they're far more creative in many ways than these other uh, these other countries. They they realize that uh, that uh, radio is a an oral medium, and so they don't have uh, station breaks that rely just on somebody saying because they assume a lot of people won't understand the language. So one station will have a thing that goes. You'll hear a rooster crow, yeah, and you'll know what station you're listening to. Or you'll hear you'll hear the sound of of giant chimes going. That's the BBC. You know you're hearing Big Ben. That's it. Or you'll hear the sound of boom. The sound of a grenade going off, and that's the signature of a couple of countries over there. <laughs> Just uh, you know, it's uh, identifying marks. Well, nevertheless, uh, you want to hear something about that? You want to hear the uh, about? No, no, stop. I saw it. Once is enough, honey. Twice is too much. Three times you're fired. Okay? So I'm, <laughs> I'm lying in the sack. That, and she's finished her long dissertation on Arabic music. And she says, stay tuned for the next program. <laughs> On comes the signature. I'm waiting. And in comes the same voice, this girl. She says, and now we present music as you like it. And I say, well, now we're going to get the... What do you think comes on? Are you ready for it? Elvis Presley. After all this talk about how we should listen to this great music, 
And it turns out she starts giving, this is the ironical part of it, she starts giving all of these dedications. And every last dedication is an Arab. For Mohammed El Saib to his girlfriend Fatima El Sahashuk, we are now playing Hound Dog. <laughs> Gee, it's funny. You know, when you run into the reverse chauvinism that's going on in every country, for example, all throughout America, all the hippies are digging, say, Welsh folk songs. And uh, they're digging Israeli folk songs. You go to Israel, and all the hippies are digging West Virginia folk songs. <laughs> I couldn't care less about my Israeli folk songs. As a matter of fact, I tried. It took me three days to take to get an Israeli to take me to a place where they were really singing Israeli folk songs. Like, a tourist? Do you want to? What do you to be a tourist? <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of tourists and the fantastic. A trip of life. This is WOR AM and FM New York. Hit the button when you learn that. The bright, clear taste in beer. Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. That's Miller Highlight. And this is your beer alternative station, WBAI, New York, FM only. ...more recognize the traditional quality and heritage of an unequaled, unchanging, truly great beer. Wherever people are living better, you'll find Miller High Life in handy take-home cans, on tap, or in the familiar crystal clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest, ask for Miller High Life. The champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling. Flavorful. Distinctive. This is the fall of Rome hour. Let's see. We have a couple of little whoopies here. I see. Honda. I mean Honda. Excuse me. I was going to dedicate this commercial to Barbara Streisand. This is a Honda commercial. Uh, we've got uh, Honda, <laughs> terrible, Fleischmann Honda, and uh, they sell these fantastic motorcycles, and if you're planning, you know, it's funny how many people are uh, thinking of making the big step, but before you do that, it's very important to know where you're going. Uh, at least go to some place uh, where they'll put you on the right motorcycle. Uh, in addition, teach you to ride it. That's kind of important. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the people at Fleischmann will not only teach you to ride the thing, they'll see to it that you get insured. Uh, they'll make sure you've got the right machine. And Fleischmann Honda is located all throughout Long Island. Let's see, there's one in Long Beach, one in West Islip, one in Bayshore, one in uh, Douglaston, Long Island. And there's one uh, in Queens on Woodside, in Woodside, Queens, on Queens Boulevard. That's one mile west of Macy. And uh, there's a whole line of uh, Hondas, ranging all the way from little putt-putts all the way on up to the big competition machines. And it's one of the most highly respected motorcycles built anywhere in the world. They're recognized uh, everywhere. They're beautiful machines. And personally, I drive a 305 Super Hawk, which is a lot of motorcycle. This is a Honda. Okay, Fleischmann Honda. Now let's get on with, uh, what do we have here, Rover? Speaking of a lot of machine... Uh, if uh, you're thinking of making the big step and getting out of the tin can you're driving, 
I would like to uh, recommend the Rover 2000 TC. By the way, uh, for the benefit of... Uh, a rover did not send me to Israel or the Middle East. And there's always about nine klutzes who think every time you go somewhere, you're getting it free. That Pepsi-Cola sending you or Coca-Cola or something. Uh, the galloping cynicism of our time knows no end. I have no connection with Rover other than I do a commercial for them occasionally on my radio show. Rover is not interested in sending me to the Negev Desert to ride in a rover uh, next to King Solomon's Mine. So forget it, Jack. Uh, the Rover 2000 TC is a magnificent car, one of the truly highly respected machines today. And by the way, is generally considered to be at least five years ahead of what's being built and what is driving around on the highways at this time. So if you buy a Rover, you are set for at least five years as far as technical achievements are concerned. They're way ahead of them. This is the Rover 2000 TC. All right. Now, let's see. We have Miller, Rover, Honda. Oh, Limelight, yes. Tomorrow night I will be live, as big and fat and angry as a bird, at the Limelight tomorrow night. All right, there's all kinds of birds, wise guy. I'm thinking of an angry bird. Kind of uh, terrible. The others, they forgot to, did I tell you about the great birds they've got in the Middle East? Some wild birds. I'll tell you about the one bird that I saw in this Yemenot restaurant. Well, that's another story. We'll go into this one. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw a guy sitting down in, in a Yemenite restaurant. It's, these are the sites that you make you know that America uh, is truly a foreign country to the rest of the world. Uh, I, I wish I had leave, uh, I wish I had my Yemenite uh, menu here. Yeah, the one that says sheep's bowels. That's good. Uh, it was great. They do it in tomato sauce. It's fantastic. Then you can order, you can, yeah, they have on the menu, they have it all listed. Very specific menu. For example, you can order spleen. Yeah, you can order pancreas. I'm serious. You can order left or right kidney. It depends on, you know, there's different tastes. There's left wing kidneys, there's right wing kidneys. You can order all, all kinds of things, which because we do have a family audience, I will not go into it this time. However, I ask you to use your imagination. And they're served right there <laughs> in the Yemenot restaurant. So it's a very big, exciting world. And, and th we're going to do a little of that tomorrow night at the Limelight. By the way, Larry, do you think I'll be able to get away with wearing my tarbouche in the village tomorrow night? Yeah, I expect by, by tomorrow night my uh, slave girl will have arrived. I've ordered one. I bought her in the in the Arab Bazaar in Nazareth. She's arriving. <laughs> She's coming in duty free. You know you can uh, you know you know the right people. So tomorrow night at the limelight uh, from ten thirty until midnight. And if you can't make the scene, we'll be broadcast from there. This is a little thing we do. We make a little uh, bow towards the station here. But uh, we will be on the air. And uh, if you're coming down tomorrow night, I suggest you get down a little early because the really good stuff is going to happen early tomorrow night. Okay? Now, let's see. What else do we have? Uh, Merv? Oh, yes. I'm, uh, no, no. You want me to mention that? I better. Yeah, I'm going to be on the Merv Griffin Show Monday night. So if uh, you really want to see uh, how sickening television can get, I'll be... Uh, yeah, and I mean it. There's one moment there. I'll be on the Merv Griffin Show Monday night. All right? Now, let's return to reality. Will you hit the gong there? That's it. Hit it there. There we go. There you go. Bring it up there, Robert. That's it. That's it. Big enough. In down and out. Excellent thing. Set it back. You want to know one of the most disillusioning things that happened to me in the Middle East? I started to tell this story 
and I never got around to finishing it, unfortunately. I'm in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is, as I said earlier in the week, Beersheba is a desert city. And it is traditionally, it was traditionally anyway, throughout the ages, the crossroads of the great caravans that moved, crisscrossed the Negev, went down into Arabia and up into Persia and all the way up into India. And if you get your map out, you can see how Africa and how uh, uh, Africa and Asia come together, kind of scrunched up there. And right there in the middle is this thing hanging down. There's Persia and there's uh, Saudi Arabia and these places. And right in the right in the long line, if you were to draw a line between Calcutta and try to draw it all the way down and try to move it down into Africa, you'd see you'd cut right across the Negev Desert. Well, there's a little dot there that says Beersheba. And that was a famous oasis, crossroads. They had a wild uh, Arabic uh, market there. And, and you know when their market starts? Their market starts at 4 a.m. every Thursday. And even to this day, at 4 o'clock in the morning... Every Thursday, the Bedouin tribes are all drifting around out there. One of the weirdest sights, really a genuinely weird sight, is to see a group of Bedouins. These, are, these guys are living like uh, they must have lived 5,000 years ago, about. A group of Bedouins leading their camels and riding their horses on the move, moving across the Negev Desert, and outlined against them, you see this fantastically modern, a superbly designed hydroelectric plant. And they're just moving across it so they don't even see it. It's going right on through that desert. Well, they go through Beersheba, and every Thursday morning at, at 4 a.m., they meet in this big open place. It's just kind of a chunk of the desert that they've got sort of uh, pegged out. And this is where the Bedouin market meets. And the Bedouins get together and they meet there. They, they drift in. Uh, you know the code of the, of the uh, nomadic Bedouin tribes. That is, it's a very, uh, a very complicated code. And one of the elements of the Bedouin code is this. Because they do live such marginal existences, really. Very difficult to live in the desert. They are responsible for each other, always. And so you attack one Bedouin. You're attacking the whole crowd. <laughs> Did you know that, Lee? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the Bedouin sheikhs are still there. They, they bear very little resemblance to the movie idea of them. They do not look really like Rudolph Valentino sitting in a, in a Hollywood plastic tent with Lady Godiva on one knee. They really look uh, it's very difficult to describe them. You see them all huddled up in their little dark tent, and the camel is moving around outside, maybe five or six camels, and a herd of goats tended by two or three little tiny kids, little thin kids. The Arab generally is kind of small. You see these little kids, they're all wrapped up in the girl. Usually you can tell the girls because they always have a, 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 a what looks like a scarf wrapped up all the way around. Just You can just see their eyes. It's like they're, they're almost in purdah at the age of six or seven, and they're, they're walking around among the goats, and you see the camels moving on up the hillside, and there is that low, flat, black and brown and earth-colored tent, low, flat tent, and that's the Bedouin's, uh, this is his house, his castle, and you see one little hole in it, and that's the doorway, and you, if you walk, if you walk in a certain way, you can see huddled up in, in the corner, you see this white figure. It's a long white robe. You see this white burnous, uh, this this uh, tarbouche flowing down. And looking out at you from this, this dark opening is the Arab sheik. 
where you may see furtively, screw, screw, just sort of skittering past it, you may see one of the women. The women are almost impossible to see. They're always kept away and hidden in the back of the tent. And at, uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning, the Arabs gather at uh, the marketplace in Beersheba. And the whole area is filled with camels. It's like the parking lot at the A&P. Uh, they've all brought, yeah, that's a fact. They've all come ridden in. You know, the, the Arab does not ride around on a jeep. He, he, his, his transportation is the camel. His transportation is also uh, the Arabian horse. And so you'll see these Arabian horses, and you'll see this great big field full of camels at, at dawn, and the stars are still up, and they're all, and you hear this fantastic cacophony, this uproar of all this Arabic talk and about 6,000 different kinds of dialect, big hoopla, and this overpowering smell of sheep and goats because this is what they're dealing in they're dealing in sheep and goats I saw one one fantastic sight I saw a guy uh, an Arab uh, I don't couldn't quite figure out what he was but he was one of them and he had this this automobile where he got this thing I have no idea but it was a, it was a station wagon it looked like like a typical Chevrolet country squire type station wagon with light baby blue with the fins on the whole interior had been gutted just it was debauched, this car. Just the doors hanging loose on it, the windows cracked. And here was this typical American suburban station wagon in the middle of this insane marketplace in Beersheba. And it was filled with goats. And they were all looking, wah, wah, and this whole wild thing. And the, the, the springs were busted on it, and this guy came roaring up. Obviously, it was the, you know, it was the fantastic pride of his life. And the goats, ah! And all around are the camels and the, the and, and always, invariably, when any, any of these people get together, particularly the Yemenites, you instantly hear this wild music break out. I saw a truck full of Yemenites. Uh, uh, you can't describe how they look. They, they look really like what you consider gypsies. There's a look of the Spanish about them. Uh, kind of a, a wild, uh, fascinating look. And they're all dancing in a circle. They're waiting to eat. And, there's, and, and so their, their music is playing and the drums are going. The people are roaring. And they just rush them right into the buses. Instantly, they're in the bus. And you hear coming from the bus. You're... How they ever managed to dance and yell and holler in, in a bus, I don't know. But the whole bus was rocking. And off it went down into the, into the desert. And this was on a holiday. And that's why they were all taking a trip. It was a group of Yemenites to, uh, going around the country on a, on a tourist thing. And uh, they were wilder than anything they were going to see themselves. And uh, they all got out and looked at the Coke machine, and they were taking, a couple of them took a picture of it. You know, they were, they were seeing, and the drums started, and back they went into the bus, and off the bus went into the desert. And I said, wow. Well, Beersheba at that hour is at four in the morning is this cacophony in that one spot and people come down and of course look at it uh, westerners once in a while come down and look at the market but it's a genuine market it's not done for uh, for tourists because it has been there for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, as far back as recorded history goes this marketplace has been in operation and it continues to this day and it continues to trade in the same thing that it traded in uh, hides camel hides the things that a Bedouin needs uh, he's constantly trading back and forth his weapons. Because after all, he does live in the desert. And the desert is peopled with rattlesnakes and various... You know, they have wolves in the Negev. Did you know that? Uh, there are cougars in the Negev. Uh, 
there is a kind, they call them leopards. <laughs> this uh, this uh, Romanian guy who was always saying, leopard. I said, you mean a leopard? He said, yeah, leopard. And so they have they have leopards. And uh, the, all the all the Bedouins, of course, go armed. Uh, you'll find that they carry usually a dagger. They have two or three types of daggers. They have a working dagger, which is, you know, just when you meet an ordinary enemy. Uh, <laughs> then that's a working dagger. Then they have ceremonial daggers, you know, big silver with the inlaid handles and all that. And that's if you want to kill somebody close to you, like your mother-in-law or something. It's a very ceremonial type. And they, they have, you know, and, and so when you go to the bazaar, all the stuff is being traded in the the, the, uh, the clothing. And it was at this bazaar that I picked up my, my uh, tarbouche. And a uh, great tarbouche. And uh, I'll wear that down at, the, down at the show if you want to see. Oh, I look fantastic in it, I'll tell you. Well, now, uh, here is Beersheba at the crossroads. And uh, here in the middle of Beersheba is this hotel, which is laying right out on the edge of the desert. Now, I arrive in the middle of uh, the afternoon, and I take a look at this. What an exciting-looking place. Except for one thing. The uh, the hotel looks like a little bit of Las Vegas. Uh, and they're very proud of that somehow. <laughs> they believe that Las Vegas is uh, one of the more civilized spots in the world. And so... Uh, here is here is Las Vegas. It's, you have the vague feeling that they're replacing one kind of barbarism for another. You know, one is plastic and the other happens to be made out of copper. So here here is here's a little bit of Las Vegas called the Desert Inn, and it's all plastic and it's got green glass all over, and it's got a plastic swimming pool out in the back, and it's got plastic deck chairs and the whole scene, and it's lying right in the desert, right in the middle of this this waste, and about oh maybe six and a half. In, uh, minutes away from it is the genuine Arab Bedouin uh, crossroads of the world meeting place and marketplace. And here's the Desert Inn with the ceremonial Bedouins painted on the outside of it. You see, the phony Bedouins that look like they were done by Walt Disney. You know, cute Bedouins. <laughs> and they're kind of looking funny. And right in the middle of this place, this kind of a U-shaped building, is a genuine Bedouin tent. It's a very eerie sight. It's as though you have arrived in front of the Waldorf and somebody has pitched in front of the Waldorf the tent of a roving band of uh, Genghis Khan. Yeah, they put, the, they put the tents right there, see? And there's a little sign inside the lobby. It says, be sure tonight to attend the show in the Bedouin's tent. And there's the Bedouin's tent out there. So I made my reservation and I'm ready to go. I said, by George, here's where I'm going to see the real thing. The real thing. And so now it's 8 o'clock at night. And uh, the elevators are going and all the people are going out to the Bedouin's tent. And I walk out through this hot desert air. You walk out of the hotel and it's hot. This, you, you, you feel that, that, that uh, baked sand in the night. You can see the stars above you. And here's the Bedouin's tent lying there now in the moonlight. And in I go. And it's dark at first. The, these tents are, are very low and dark. You kind of duck your head down. It's a big tent, big flat tent. It must be 75 feet long and about maybe 40 feet across. Low tent. That's the way the tents are out in the desert. You see them. They're about that size. Long, low, flat, hut-like looking tents with, a, with many poles, not just one, but with many. They got, the roof looks like it's scalloped, just lays against the horizon. And there it is. You can smell the smell of the camel. Uh, the camel hair. You see, it's made out of camel fur. It's made out of 
goat uh, hides and so on. The tent, as you see, all sewed together. That's why they get that, that mottled look, because there are many different types of hides all sewed together. There's goat, there's camel, and there's a sheep. So it, it has a kind of camouflage, mottled look to it. I duck my head and I go in, and here, uh, it takes about a minute and a half before your eyes get used to the darkness. And you see all around you, you see these low kind of... Uh, well, they're kind of like chaise lounges. They're low things upon which all all banked around the sides in the corner. And they have these big these big leather cushions. And this is the way the Arabs live. It's the low and they they kind of they don't have the kind of seats we have. It's all low where the people lie. You've seen pictures of them where they lie down and they sort of uh, they sort of uh, lounge. The, the Arab uh, the Arab knows how to live in his world. See, and they lounge and they look across. And you see these low blue lanterns hanging, the flickering light, and they're 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 lit with uh, kerosenes. Low, and they have they have kind of a blue uh, blue lens around. You get the blue and the yellow lens. Wow! And, you look around. and all these people are all lounging around the walls. It's the international set has gathered to to sip of the insanely erotic delights of the Middle East, and I'm ready to go. I can see those shades glinting in those blue lights, you know. Wowie. And uh, the show has not begun. And so I am, I, am, I am led through the tent by this hooded Arab. He's bringing me through the tent. He's speaking Arab, and I'm going back to Okay. And we sit down, lounge, really. I lounge down. I, I'm, I'm now up against a camel, uh, a big camel pelt behind me. Oh, old Shep has come all the way. And I and I light I light one of my sinister Middle Eastern cigarettes that I bought. And of course, what this does immediately is shrivels your lungs right down to your feet. You know, <laughs> I've got my shades on now. I want to look like, uh, you know, kind of like Humphrey Bogart on his day off. See, he's come down here. To meet Peter Laurie. And they're going to exchange a few little bits of information because they're going to both go out and get Sidney Green Street in a half an hour. And Lauren Bacall will show up, see. And so I'm lounging and I, I, I see all these other guys running with the white, with the white coats. Oh, you, you, you meet it. And there's about 500 nubile chicks who all look a little bit like uh, Bridget Mardot's kid sister. Oh, boy. I'm ready, see. And I see the stage over there. I'm saying, oh, boy. Just in just a few moments, I am going to see the delights that, that make, will, make the, will make this Midwestern mind real. Oh, this is what, this is it. This is what, this is what I've come for. And I see that dark little stage. And a few strange instruments uh, lined up against that goatskin background. You know, and the little flickering blue lights on it. And I can hear it in my mind already. I can hear those finger symbols. I can see that writhing figure, that coppery figure picking up those flickering purple lights. I can see those muscles, muscles that human beings rarely ever have shown to the roaring public. The flashing eyes. I can smell the hashish rising. The opium. Bring it on. Stronger women. Uh, more supple wines. I'm ready for it, see. Well, there is a slight stir among the assemblage. 
and I am aware, you can sense it in the air, you know, like any time when you go to a show, you can sense it in the air that something is about to begin. And my, my Arab waiter comes over, he bows, he scrapes with out of the and he puts down before me a bowl of figs. <laughs> and a few dates, and believe it or not, a big long string of tropical Negev desert grapes. I said, by George grapes. Uh, this is just the beginning. Just the beginning. And I sip my drink, which turns out to be a watered scotch of an obscene variety. I sip my drink and I say, well, that's the way they drink it here in the Middle East. No doubt it contains some strange elixir that I do not yet know of. <laughs> yeah. And I take one of those plastic grapes. Ah, all right, I'm ready. And I sense the stir in the audience. It's about to happen. And then the curtain parts. And out step three guys right out of the Catskills. Wearing sequin jacks, jackets. Three guys, Manny, Moe, and Jack, and their rock and roll swing trio. They step out. One of them walks up to the microphone and says, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the Desert Inn. Want to welcome you to Bedouin's Tent. And now let's get underway. Let's go. It's time to swing. It's time to frog. It's time to rock and roll. The next thing I know, I'm listening to the worst rock and roll I've heard this side of the action station. And these guys are wearing these sequin jackets. And I'm waiting for the show to begin. And then it was it hit me like a big bomb on the top of the head. This is the show. Oh, no. This is the show. And I sat there eating that plastic grape, sipping that, that obscene scotch, watching these three rock and roll guys. <laughs> and were they bad rock and roll? I had the feeling that I'm looking at CCNY revisited. Holy smokes. And, the, you know, and, and he finishes, all right, folks, let's give the boys a great big hand. Let's give them a big hand. Let's give them. And two or three languid-looking Arab chefs start applauding over the corner. They're loving it. And to, to add to the fantastic irony of it all, sitting next to them on the stage was a prop Arab. A real Arab. He's the sheik. He's sitting there, and he's watching with glazed eyes. These rock and roll musicians, these glazed eyes, he just sits there and he keeps smoking luckies, watching the scene. And I wonder when they're going to start playing those strange instruments that I see behind them. And I recognize them for what they are. They're props. They're just props. And from outside, I could smell the scent of the desert wafting in, the real desert. And somewhere off in the distance, you can just feel the padded feet of camels moving toward the Moab mountains. A few Bedouins riding easy in the saddle look over that long flat plain and they see the neon glow in the sky of the Bedouin tent and they wonder what strange things go on in the mind of the Western man. And the stars shine and the moon hangs like a great silver mirror over the changeless desert. An old chap lounges there on his soft foam, rubber foam, by the way, his foam rubber Arab seat and waits for the next chapter to begin in man's upward climb.
Keep your knees loose. Come into my tent. Come. I have the lights. Come, Shaheed. Come. I have the lights that will send your mind reeling. We have wine, women, and song, and genuine rock and roll. Come. Gene Shepard from June 10th, 1966, the end of our series on his trip to the Holy Land. Ah, next week, more George Harrison, the conclusion of Return to Inverness. You are radio. Uh, no, it's not. And on the Golden Age of Radio this week, two special live productions, the Gotham Radio Players and Christmas at the Crawford, Sunday night, 7.30. It's 6 a.m. You're tuned to Listener's Point.